Turn in your Bibles to James 1. And um, as we read the scriptures today, we could um, almost back up to verse 12 and sort of a, a recap of what James was talking, because this all sort of flows together in a message to us. And again, this was written most likely as a sermon to the churches, to be read in the churches. And back in 12 and 13, it says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, it brings forth death. And there he goes into our scripture we read today. Therefore, do not be deceived, my brethren. See, we can be deceived by a lot of things. We can be deceived by our emotions. We can be deceived by things other people say. We can be deceived by a whole bunch of things. And even sin, it says, that we can be deceived by. Well, the, you know, God put this temptation in front of me. God will never tempt us to evil. And so we're going to talk about God's goodness in contrast to the temptations that we face. First Corinthians tells us, that there is no temptation that can overtake us, but that which is common to man. And when we have been tempted, it says, he has provided a way out. He gives us a way out of all things that we face. Saying that, we understand it even as Christians, as the most sincere Christians, as the most devoted, wanting to live for Christ, we understand we still are going to have sin in our life. Now that's not a license to sin, that's just the reality of these things. And when we see sin in our life, as First John would say, we need to repent of those. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we repent of those things. And so James is sort of putting the, the rubber to the road. He's the one that's sort of telling us the way that we should live, the way that we need to live, and is our profession again matching our walk? You know, there's a lot of time, you know, Jesus said, you know, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I command you? He says, if you love me, you will do what I say. And so we can really, in our, in our life, if we look at ourselves, really, in our nature, we can really expect no true goodness from our own fallen nature, from our own self. And so what James is telling us here, that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every blessing that we have comes from God, our Father in heaven. And the ultimate goodness of any gift we need to measure in the eternal effects in our life. Okay, so there can be temporal things that sometimes happen in our lives, but something may seem to be good for the moment. I, I won the lottery. I did a scratch ticket and I won the lottery. You know, when you look at the people who have won those lotteries and won all these millions of dollars, you look a few years later and most of them are broke. A lot of them are, are destitute. Some of them, their marriages have fallen apart. Uh, their families have been destroyed. Some of them have committed suicide. You know, when we look at something in the short term, we can say, oh, that, that seems so good. These, these young athletes today that um, get into sports, they're, they're making millions and millions of dollars a year. But down the road, you see the fracturedness. You see the, the destruction of their families, of their lives with drugs and alcohol, living in the fast lane, all these things. And so sometimes we want to credit 
these things that are, are, are look like blessings, they can actually be destructive in our life. So we need to look at it on an eternal scale. Are these things that are going to be recognized in the kingdom of God? The work that we do as Christians, the work that we do as a church, we try to meet some temporal needs here on earth, but we're doing it for the greater glory of God, for an eternal benefit, for an eternal cause. And it says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We sing a song like that, uh, you know, there, where there is no variation or shadow of turning with him. God's goodness is constant. I want us to, to really wrap our minds around that. His goodness is constant. It is always there. It is always present. It is always in the same volume. Sometimes as Christians we say, you know, I don't feel God's presence. Where is God at work in, in the world today as we're facing all these things? And then other times we really feel blessed, like, oh, God's presence and his blessings are so strong in my life. And so one day we're saying they're there, one day we're saying that they're gone, but the scriptures would teach us that there is no variation. There is no shadow of turning with what he has. Hebert tells us this, that the ancient Greek is actually the father of lights. And that means all the celestial things. You know, when you're out at night and you look up in the sky and you see the, the stars and the moon, that's a reminder of the power of God. That's the reminder that he is always with us even when the sun is not shining. He is always there. He is always constant in our life. And we need to give him that glory and that honor when we think of those things. When we talk about night, if we look at the world, you know, last night it was dark out. Do you think the sun was gone? No, the sun was still shining. Shining as bright as it ever did. It's not like, the, like when we go to bed, we turn off the lights, and so somebody turns out the sun. The only reason we don't see the sun is because the world has turned from the sun. In our life, many times, we have turned from God, and so we don't feel the presence of God in our life, but he is shining as bright as he ever was. He is willing to continue to bless and work in our life, always, constantly. There's no shadow of turning with him. God never changes. The scripture is clear on that. God never changes. He doesn't just love you when you're good. He loves you all the time. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say that when he hung upon the cross, he loved you while you were yet dead in your sin. So sometimes we think, oh, well, if I'm a, if I'm a good Christian, God loves me more. God's love is constant. I would say it pleases him more when we're walking in his ways. But his love is constant because there is no variation. Okay, there is no variation. There is no shadow of turning with him. His love is continually for the lost and for those that serve him. His love was for people. He sent Jesus down here as the Godhead, as the Son, to live a life amongst us, to be a sacrifice and atonement for us. There is no variation of this. And it goes on to say, by his own will, he brought us forth from the word of truth. Sometimes we can get in our head too that, well, you know, when I'm ready to come to God, I'm going to get my life right. James understood that the gift of salvation was given by God. Do we understand that the gift of salvation is not something that we've earned or acquired by something that we've done? But James says it's a gift of God. It's not earned by the obedience of, of man. 
Again, the obedience of man pleases God, but it doesn't earn salvation. By grace we have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any of us could boast. And so I can say that the gift of salvation isn't because I'm a pastor, it isn't because I try to do good things, it isn't because I give so much uh, to ministries that you know help others. That's not what gives me salvation. My salvation comes because of the brokenness and because of the gift that God has given me. It says that he brought forth. Trapp said this in his commentary. The word probably, uh, properly signifies he did the work of a mother to us, meaning bringing us to the light of life. So if you think of a, a lady that's had a baby, okay, she's carried that baby and then she gives birth to it. That baby hasn't done anything. It's the mother that has done that work. So it is with God. He has brought us the gift of life. He gives us life. You know, the world and science, they can do many things today that are, are really fairly amazing. But the one thing that they can't do is they can't create life. Life is already in the things that are there. A seed that appears dead has life in it. If you were to ask science, well, how, where does that life start? How does it begin? They don't know. They cannot recreate that out of nothing. It's something that God has created. And so he gives us that life. Spurgeon says this, now mostly men who are generous need to have their generosity excited. They will need to be waited upon. Appeals must be laid before them. They must sometimes be pressed. An example must lead them on. So he's talking sometimes people that are affluent need these reasons to do things. But he goes on to say, but of his own will, God did to us all that has been done without any incentive or prompting, moved only by himself, because he delighteth in mercy, because his name and his nature are love, because, love because evermore, like the sun, it is natural to him to distribute the beams of his eternal grace. There's no variation with God. He is always looking, if you read through the scriptures, especially like the Psalms and some of those, he is always looking for ways to delight in his people. He wants us to have that relationship with him and he wants to lavish these things upon us. Remember it said if we, if we need wisdom, what do we do? We ask to him who gives graciously. He gives things to us graciously. Again, not in the material sense, not like the prosperity gospel talks, but things that we need in our life. He gives us comfort. He gives us joy. He gives us hope. He gives us purpose. He gives us direction in our life. He extols his mercy upon us and lavishes us with his love. His grace is abundant in our lives if we're willing to accept it and to have it in our life. God wants to give us all these things that we might be a type of a first fruit, it says, of his creation. The first fruits are, are something that's important. When you plant a tree, if you plant a garden, you're hoping for that crop. When you go out in the field, I always say farmers are the, the greatest people of faith because they'll take this bag of stuff and they'll churn up the dirt and they put it out there. And for the longest time, that dirt remains brown. And it's like, is that stuff ever going to come up? And then all of a sudden, here it comes. And so when we look at trees that are planted, apple trees, if we have an apple tree that's planted and doesn't produce fruit, we get rid of it. But it says when God is in us, we bear fruit. Galatians talks all about 
the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And so we become sort of this first fruits of God. The goodness of his salvation worked out and showed out in our love. The previous verses that we just read this morning, James tells us about what the lust of man brings forth. And as we've read through the scriptures before, we know about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And that sin is always attached to one of those three things. And as he told us earlier here, he says, don't ever say that God has tempted you. But he says, when we are tempted, when our desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when it has full grown, it brings forth death. It says that we are enticed by our own lusts, our own desires of our life. And so James is telling us that. And here he says what the will of God brings. So the will of man brings death into sin. It's our will to stray. It's our will to satisfy self. We're going to talk about this in just a moment. But it was God's will to bring salvation to us. A kind of first fruits to his creation that he has. And so James may refer, may really be referring to his own generation here. We have the, the uh, Jews that were converts. But he's also talking about the Gentiles. I think he was expecting a greater crowd. So sometimes when people are planting a, a, a reoccurring crop, it's like, well, we got so much this year. You know, we've planted these grapes and we've got so much this year. But next year we should expect more. And the following year we should expect more. And the year after that we should have an abundance as we go. And I think James is, is sort of talking about that. Um, even though it was written mainly to the ones of the Jewish background, he's also incorporating in the Gentiles here. And so when we get into 19 and 20, it talks about standing firm against sort of an unrighteous anger. And so 19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That really intrigued me. And I, it brought me back to a, a thought that I had heard from somebody a long time ago saying that you got two eyes, two ears, and one mouth. Use them in proportion. And I thought that, you know, that was always stuck with me from wherever. So if you were just to do the math, you should speak about 20%. And you should be, you know, listening and, and watching a lot more. And so in our life, we sort of have that backwards, don't we? We talk a lot more than we listen. We talk a lot more maybe than we even pay attention. And sometimes with our ears, we're not really listening. We may be hearing, but we're really not listening to those things. And I said, as, as you really have a burden for people, when you sit and talk with them, you can sort of hear things between the lines. They may be talking about this or that, but you know that there's something more going on. You know that there's something deeper that is going on. And so he tells us, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, or slow to anger. Is that a characteristic that we have? And as he states that again, it says that this wrath of man, the anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, we can learn to be slow to wrath by first learning to be swift to listening. You know, how many times do we really control our things? James is going to get into in a, in a couple chapters here about our tongue and the dangers of our tongue. But much of our anger can come from being self-centered and not other-centered. See, self-centered means I need to say what I want to say. I need to get my point through of what I want to say. 
I want to be heard. And when we have that mindset and that attitude, we become self-centered instead of other-centered. When we become other-centered, we begin to listen to people and, and we think about the words that we're going to say maybe before we say them. Swift to hear is a way that we can always be other-centered. You know, in the prison, I used to think, you know, well, these guys are always writing up and, and wanting to talk and this and that. And it didn't take me long to really realize that they just wanted to be heard. See, a lost world or people that are searching for truth or searching for answers or that are going through difficulties, they want to be heard. They sometimes just want somebody to sit and, and listen to them. They don't always need an answer. They don't always need the advice. And see, that's when early on in my ministry, that was it. As they were talking, I was always thinking of the answer that I could give them to fix the problem. What I really found out is most of the times they knew the answer to the problem. They just wanted somebody to listen to them. And so then we could just sort of guide them slowly. And they would self-discover as they talked. And so as believers, as Christians, I think it's important to be swift to hear because that shows people that we care, that we're centered on them, that we're willing to listen to them. Slow to speak is a way to be other-centered because we're considering them more than we're considering ourselves. Trapp said this, but has not nature taught us the same that the apostle does here? By giving us two ears, those which are open, but one tongue, and that hedged in with teeth and lips. I sort of like that. Our ears are open. They're open all the time. You know, we don't even need to really be paying attention to something. We can be sitting and we're going to hear because our ears are always open. But it takes an effort to separate our lips and to let that tongue work that's hedged behind these teeth. And so James is sort of giving us this thought about righteousness. Slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And when I, when I was reading that over the last couple of weeks and knowing that I was going to be preaching on it, I, I really wanted to know what this righteousness is because Paul talks about a righteousness, meaning a right standing before God. And that's an important thing. So we say that, that we are born again. We're not in our own righteousness. We're in the righteousness of Christ. He has made us stand right before him. He has washed away our sins. He has cleansed us. But here he's putting it upon the man. He's putting it upon us saying about what we do with our ears and with our mouth. Does that produce the righteousness of God? And one of the translations, I can't remember if it was ESV, said something along the lines of, um, for the wrath of man does not produce the right living he desires of Christians. So are we living right? So when James talks about things, I want us to think about this. Are we thinking right? Is our mind right? Sometimes we can get in a, a negative mode. We can become uh, sometimes judgmental of things. And there's times when we're going to make discernments. There's times when judgments need to be made. But sometimes we can always think the worst instead of maybe thinking the best. Sometimes in our life we say things. What are, when people listen to you talk, would they say that's the way that, that the Lord would have you to talk? Are you using words that, that are edifying and glory, glorying to God? Because the Bible tells us whatever you do in word and in deed, it says, 
Do it all unto the glory of God. So are the words that you use bringing glory to God. The way that you use your words. So there's coarse joking that can go on. There's um, curse words, swear words that we use um, that don't bring glory to God. But we can also have a sharp tongue. We can be cynical. We can be gossipers. We can be talking down about people or bad about others. Are any of those things bringing glory to God? I don't think so. Is that showing the righteousness of God? Now again, there's a time when truth needs to be spoke, but the Bible tells us how that needs to be done. That needs to be done individually or with a witness and then maybe to others. So James is really preparing us for the rest of what he's going to talk about, about our conduct. The wrath of man, the anger of man. Do you get angry over things that people say or that people do? How is it that you respond to others around you? Are you losing your temper? Are you getting angry? Are you out of control? Because when they talk about this wrath, it's not the righteous wrath that God has. This wrath is man's wrath. Because it says, for the wrath of man, it's not a holy wrath, it's not a holy anger. We can be angry about things, about innocent lives being took. We can be angry about abortion and innocent children being murdered. We can be angry about a lot of those injustices that are done in the world, but the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So in light of the nature and temptation of the goodness of God, we must take really special care in our life not to get angry. We get tested in this, I think, on a regular basis sometimes. And it's a hard one. You know, we all fall short sometimes in these things. But we need to take special care to be uh, slow to this wrath because our wrath is really not going to accomplish the righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but there's been times where I've said something and as those words are coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking that was a bad thing to say. Or that was the wrong thing to say. But they're out there. You can never get those words back. With our actions, our wrath, our anger, when we respond in anger, we were talking, I was talking with my brother-in-law last night a little bit about disciplining kids and our kids when they were younger and that. And I said that there was times where I would sort of sit back until I was like angry. And then I would discipline them. I said, you know, I learned that that's the wrong time to really discipline is in anger because you're sort of out of control. You're just not doing it in the proper way. I, didn't, I was beyond wanting to explain it to them. I was beyond, you know, listening to them. There was a spanking going to come or something along those lines. And so do we do those things in our life where we lash out either with our tongue or with our actions? We cannot get those back. And so we need to be slow to those things. Our wrath almost always, almost always simply defends and promotes our own agenda, our own thoughts. When we're doing anything in our own flesh, it's usually promoting us and what we want to do the way that we want to do it. Dictionaries define righteousness as behavior that is morally justifiable or right. We can fall into that trap as Christians also saying, well, you know, I had a right to be mad because of this and that. And, and we have this that is morally or justifiably right. Such behavior, it would go on to say, is characterized 
by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, and upright rightness. But the Bible's righteousness says something a little different, and I'm going to leave you with this today. The Bible's standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word we speak. Say, man, that's a big plate of stuff to swallow. It is. But I can do it through Christ Jesus. Right? Philippians says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want you just to think in your life sometimes, if you were just to slow it down a little bit. In the heat of a moment, things can be said here, and I'm wanting to to shoot back. What if I just bridle my tongue? James talks about that in the upcoming chapters. What if I just hold my thought in? What if I just listen for a while? God's righteousness of his own perfection in every attribute that we have. How do you treat people? How do you treat others? Every attitude. You know, an attitude is something you can choose in the morning. Maybe I didn't sleep well last night and I can get up and I just want to be cranky or, you know, you come and something's not done and you got to pick up somebody else's mess and, and, and you can sort of get the wrong attitude with it. But we can choose our attitude. You choose to have the attitude of Christ. To be positive in the things that you're doing. Every behavior. How do you behave? How is your behavior? How do you respond to others? And it says in every word. The words that we speak are powerful things. Again, James is going to talk about them because they can be like poison darts. Or they can be like comfort. Does your life reflect these things in all ways? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word that encourages us. Your word that challenges us. Lord, James is sort of a blue-collar preacher. He's just sort of cutting through the chase, and he's telling us the way that it is. And, Lord, sometimes it's hard for us. We have sort of formulated our own ways. We've, we've formulated our own thoughts. As the scriptures say, each one tends to want to be right in their own eyes. But Lord, we want to be right in your eyes. Lord, help us in our life to be a a magnet of Jesus. That as people listen to us, as they see us, as we listen to them, or as we share the gospel with them, Lord, that they are drawn to you, that they will have a great love for you. We thank you, Lord, for this church and church body. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful servants that you have given us here. We thank you for their ministry in the world. and Lord, we don't need to be discouraged because we fall short. We just need to be encouraged that you are there to pick us up and to dust us off and to continue to use us. Sometimes when we fail once, we feel like throwing in the towel or giving up. But Lord, you are there and you just sort of put us back on the bike and you're right there with us, running along like a little child that has training wheels and then they just came off and mom or dad or whoever is running right next to them just to make sure. Father, help us to depend on you more for each and every one of these things. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings in our life. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings that we haven't even received yet, but, Lord, you have waiting for us. And we just praise you, Lord, for all that you do. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.